Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. It's my pleasure to be with you this morning and look forward to extending our discussion tonight. I can't imagine a group of people I'd rather speak to this morning than future ministers in the body of Christ, people who care deeply about um, and the care of people. And I think of navigating the train of sexual identity. Um, this is a terrific opportunity. Um, so I'm going to be talking about sexual identity and the question of vocation. Uh, also, I uh, was struck by uh, your beautiful campus, and I understand you have, we were joking coming in, you have one of the best gymnasiums among all seminaries. Um, so uh, there's a, the only reason I bring this up is there's a little known fact about me. I wasn't even going to really say it, but since you have such a terrific facility, I think you might want to know this. I actually played uh, basketball um, some time ago, and I'm, don't get me wrong, I still have four years of eligibility left, but I, I played, um, played in my intramural team at my university, the psychology department decided to put a team on the court, so of course we were called Pavlov's Dogs. Um, so, um, one of the years I began to really think maybe I was past my prime, I was, I was playing um, uh, a, from the, a group from the law school, which was kind of our nemesis, and I um, was, see, I only shoot three-pointers, because then you don't have to run quite as far up and back, so that was my, one of my strategies, and then I, I was actually having a really good night. I was hitting quite a few of these. It was, you know, one of those things you dream of, and I, so I go down the court, and I hit one more, and someone from the sidelines, one of the fans yells out, somebody cover the old guy. So that was a little awkward. Um, <laughs> teammates never let me sort of get past that. So anyway, I've uh, kind of wrapped up my career, uh, but I always think of it fondly when I get a chance to think about those times. So anyway, we're gonna talk about sexual identity and the question of vocation or mission, purpose, function in a person's life. Um, I direct an institute at my university for the last 17 years I've been studying the experiences of people navigating sexual identity questions in their life. So sexual identity refers to the act of labeling yourself based on your sexual preferences. So when we talk about being gay or straight or bi or bi-curious or questioning. These are identity labels. And we study that in its relationship to religious identity. So we primarily study people of faith who are navigating these questions related to their same-sex sexuality. We also study it with reference to gender identity and concerns that people have there. And then that research opens doors to talk to a variety of different audiences. Someone recently wrote to me um, about another matter saying that there's a kind of uh, taxonomy of audiences here. Uh, one would be uh, the idea of instructing the church 
around sexual morality and sexual ethics. Um, that has not been my principal focus, but that is one audience. Another would be to instruct for the purposes of pastoral response, pastoral care, pastoral engagement. That has been an area of focus for me. A third would be to engage pastorally with people in need and their families. That has also been an area of focus for me as a, as a psychologist. And then lastly, to respond to those who wanna move the church away from its teachings. Some of those voices are within the church and some are beyond the church. I've been involved in that to some degree, but it's not been my principal area of focus. So I'm gonna be talking to you today out of the perspective, just so we're on the same page, of what is my focus is instructing for the purposes of pastoral response and engagement. Um, and then secondarily, I do think when you share, you are often talking to people for whom this is their story or they love people for whom this is their story or their family members, this is their story. And so in a sense, you are engaging pastorally with people in need and their families. So I take those two audiences in particular and I wanna say if that's you, if this is your story, I'm glad you're here. And I wanna say if this is the story of someone you care about deeply, someone in your family, good friend, roommate, somebody that you care deeply about, I'm glad you're here as well. I want to invite you first into a thought exercise. I want to ask you to imagine that you just recently made a decision to follow Christ. I want you to imagine that you just recently made a decision to follow Christ, that this is new for you, and that you've been asked to lead a small group of people in a study of God's word who are also relatively young in their faith. And the first thing you probably would say is, I don't know that I should be leading that group. I just gave my life to Christ. How would I be qualified in any way to have that leadership role? So that might be a normal question you ask. Now it's gonna get a little more interesting because two people in your group are gay. And they ask you, because you're a Christian and because you're facilitating this group, you're leading this Bible study, they ask you about it because you're a believer. What do you think about that? What do you make of that? What does that mean to be gay? What would it mean if I wanted to follow Christ? Now this actually happened. So I'm asking you for the thought exercise. I want you to reflect on it a little bit, but this actually did happen in a way that was documented, and I wanna draw on that story to illustrate a few points for you. It's recounted in the book by Sheldon Van Auken, A Severe Mercy. Sheldon Van Auken and his wife, Jean Davis, they called her Davy, so Sheldon and Davy. Uh, Sheldon was on faculty at Lynchburg College, not too far from here and close to my own university, and he was taking a sabbatical at Oxford, and at that time, he, they fell into a group of young Christians at Oxford. And Davy would actually give her life to Christ first. She would um, commit to what that would mean for her and her life in Christ. And Sheldon would eventually follow. And they actually led a Bible study for these young Christians, young students, two of whom shared with them that they're gay. So Davy had a friendship with C.S. Lewis, and she 
they wrote to him to ask for his perspective. Much like today, I would get an email or a Facebook message or in Twitter, I would get someone asking me, what do you think about this? They wrote to him as uh, someone who knew him, Davy knew him, they wrote to him, wondering aloud about a range of possibilities because when they weren't followers of Christ, there wasn't really a whole lot they gave much thought to. They thought that a lot of things were possible for someone who was homosexual, but they hadn't really thought about it now that they're a Christian, how should they think about it now? And just having not had a lot of time in a walk of faith in God and a relationship with Christ, they had no idea where to begin. So they wrote to him with kind of a few possibilities laid out. What would it look like here? What might it look like there? Now before I get to his response, and part of his response actually is the passage I wanna read to you today. So I'm gonna read John 9, one through three. This is not a verse that's typically connected to discussions of LGBT persons or to homosexuality in the ecclesiastical debates that are in the church or discussions going on in the culture today. John 9, 1 through 3 is what I'm going to read. As he went along, Jesus saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so the works of God might be displayed in him. Uh, The King James Version there, I think, the works of God can be made manifest in him. As I say, it's not a passage that's even brought up in discussions of gay and lesbian people today or debates about homosexuality. Maybe you'd think a better starting point would be Romans 1 or 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Timothy 1 or maybe an Old Testament verse, something from Leviticus. But what was interesting about why I'm reading this passage is it's because it's the passage Lewis, he wrote back, C.S. Lewis, it's the only time he wrote about homosexuality was in this letter to Sheldon and Davy Van Auken that they would later publish in a severe mercy. And he wrote back to them citing this passage of all things, citing this passage of all things. And he says, Uh, First, this is only an interim report. He's gonna talk with some people and he had talked with some people and he's giving them sort of a, here's my preliminary thoughts. That's maybe what you would, what I might say to somebody in a quick email back. Here's some thoughts. And then first he says, to map out the boundaries within which all discussion must go on, I take it for certain that the physical satisfaction of homosexual desire is sin. So what he does right off the bat is he lays kind of a framework. I'm gonna lay out a framework for you and then it's within that framework that we have great freedom to minister to people. I think sometimes where we struggle with ministry is we're trying to map the framework. We're trying to lay out the, the foundational piece and that itself is under attack. Sometimes within church settings but often certainly broadly within the broader culture. So you end up defending the framework and the framework not being maybe in place in quite the way that helps you ends up detracting from the freedom to do the ministry within the framework. So he lays the boundaries first and he says, I take it for certain this. And as I said, I'm not really debating and arguing for a moral position for the church. I take those things to be the case as well. I would join Lewis in saying, I think 
that Scripture is clear about what's morally permissible and what's morally impermissible. So the, the foundation for me is in that sense laid. Now we have the freedom to step into the boundary and say, what does creative pastoral engagement look like? What does ministry and care look like for a person of faith asking about what it means to be gay? What does that look like now? What would you have to say to me in the context of ministry? And then he goes on to say, essentially, um, this doesn't leave that person any worse off than anyone else who's not able to marry. There are, are many people who are unable to marry for a number of reasons. In fact, just based on base rates and prevalence estimates, there are many, many more single heterosexual people who, for whom, by virtue of them just being single, will in a sense be prevented from marrying than there ever will be gay or lesbian people just by prevalence estimates. And so the ministry frame back has to respond to singleness and single sexuality, has to have a thoughtful engagement with how do you meet the needs for intimacy that everybody has, single and married, but there will be many more single people for whom this is not their particular struggle who will also have needs for intimacy And I think if you ask single people in their 20s and 30s and 40s and beyond, they would say that the church has not ministered well to them as single people. That many ministry opportunities are ministering to them to get them married. They're single ministries to get them married, not singles ministries to help them flourish as a single person. And that would be a bigger picture that would actually be relevant to the two people in your Bible study. How do you minister well to single people? And now, what are the nuances, what are the layers that would be added to ministering well to someone who's gay? And then he goes in an interesting direction. And this is where John 9 comes in. He says, our speculations on the cause are not what matters and we must be content with ignorance. The disciples were not told why in terms of efficient cause, the man was born blind, John 9, one through three. Only the final cause, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This suggests that in homosexuality, as in every other tribulation, those works can be manifest. That is, that every disability conceals a vocation if only we can find it. Now I'm gonna come back to disability and vocation in a few minutes, but for now, I wanna talk about the thing that he just went past. I mean, you could get whiplash how fast he went past these two things. He went past causation and he went past change. Yet these are the two most frequently asked questions I receive in my institute. And these are the two most frequently asked questions that have figured prominently in larger political, ideological, and cultural wars in our culture today. What causes homosexuality and can it be changed? He says, Lewis says, we're gonna have to be content with ignorance. Now you'd say, well, that was the 1940s. Certainly in 2015, we don't have to be content with ignorance about many things, including sexuality, sexual orientation. Friends, I gotta tell you, I can't improve a whole lot more on what Lewis said. When people ask me what causes sexual orientation, 
The short answer is we don't know. What has made it difficult to answer the question has been it's been clouded by cultural debates about causation because we know that people vote differently based on what they believe about causation. So the debate, and I'll talk more about this tonight, has been between nature and nurture with those advocating a view of nature, whether it's genuinely they believe that or for political purposes, but that argument has been forcefully advanced since the 1990s. And in response to that, the church has often said, it can't be that, it's got to be, and it's either willful disobedience among some circles, or it's environment, it's nurture. It's something along those lines. And Lewis yet says, we're gonna have to be content with ignorance. And the best conclusions we draw today is that it's probably a combination of both nature and nurture influences that we don't fully understand at this time that are probably weighted differently for different people that bring about sexual orientation. And then it's interesting to me that he doesn't even talk about change, yet we have had change ministries all over the nation to make gay people straight. He doesn't even go there in a sense. He talks about vocation, mission, purpose, meaning, not to become straight, but to look at how God's glory could be made manifest in this person. How would God be honored in the life of this person? And Lewis seems to presume an enduring same-sex sexuality, which is really challenging when you think about preparing for ministry. So I'm gonna return now to the question of the words like disability and vocation. Disability is not a word that many would be drawn to. And honestly, if I was in ministry, I would not begin with that word in terms of trying to build bridges and be in relationship with the larger LGBT community. But it's a word I'm gonna use, Lewis uses it, and I'm gonna use it because I know gay people who've used it. In other words, people who themselves are navigating sexual identity questions have used that word, disability, to try to say something to me and to you about how they experience their same-sex attractions. So I don't think we should take it off the table because it would be offensive to some people in the gay community. The gay community is broader than just those who would reject that language. There are those within the gay community who would resonate with the very word disability. So let me share one quote from you, for you. I was working on a book a few years ago and interviewing people of faith who were navigating sexual identity concerns in their life. And there's one, a friend of mine, who has committed herself to celibacy, um, but is same-sex attracted and does not believe that it's morally permissible to her to to enter into a same-sex relationship. So she's taken that off the table. And she was describing to me, though, this difference between celebrating being gay and recognizing gay as sort of like a disability. And she does this in part because she's also deaf. So she takes me out of the gay debate and takes me into the deaf debate. Now, I have to be honest with you, at this point in our interview, I didn't know there was a deaf debate, so I was... I was um, learning right alongside everybody else. So she says this, let me read to you what she shared. 
And I think you'll see the difference here between those who celebrate their identity as gay and those for whom it might function more like a disability. She says, in the world of hearing loss, you have those who are deaf and those who are deaf. These two groups are well distinguished and identified. Anyone who uses capital D deaf knows that she is referring to something more than small d deaf. People who are deaf with a capital D comprise a culture. They do not see themselves as having a disability. Instead, they see themselves as a people group with their own language and their own culture. On the other hand, those who are deaf, lowercase d, do not see their hearing loss as an identity. Instead, they see it as a disability or as a medical condition. This group is more likely to be oral. That is, they often undergo intensive training to lip read and use their voice to communicate instead of using sign language. Some might also seek a cochlear implant. When they say, I am deaf, with a, capital, with a lowercase d, when they say, I am deaf, with a lowercase d, they are not saying, I am deaf, with an uppercase d. At times, there's contention between the groups because of a conflict in how each group understands its experience of hearing loss. For example, those who are deaf with a capital D see cochlear implants as threatening and as an extreme offense. They don't believe anything needs to be fixed. They celebrate their identity as deaf. Do you see the connection there? When you minister, you minister perhaps to different communities, different audiences, different groups of people. To minister to gay people would not capture the nuances of the many ways in which people navigate that terrain. Some will be navigating that terrain and celebrating their identity as gay and relationships that they believe are morally permissible. Others will see this more like a disability, more like what Lewis says, they'll be searching for vocation and ministry that responds to those who are celebrating identity, who reacts to defend against those folks can often miss the people within your own faith community who are navigating this terrain who might be more likely to see it as a concern for them, a disability. Another friend of mine would talk about it as more of a Pauline thorn in the flesh. He sees it that way and experiences that way. And just like Paul, he prayed for healing and deliverance from that thorn. And just like Paul, that didn't take place. So what does it mean to minister then to someone for whom this is an enduring experience, but it's experienced more like a disability or a thorn? You see, we want to be thoughtful in ministry that we're um, we're, we're responding to multiple audiences, often all the time. We have to be thoughtful about our engagement with them. You will miss opportunities to care about vocation when you're defending yourself against one group. And when you minister well to people and care and are compassionate to people, you may be misunderstood as not sufficiently defending against another group. And you'll be holding these things in tension for yourself. What groups are you called to minister to? My experience has been all across the board. You're wearing different hats of ministry to different groups when you're engaging them. Lewis would also write to 
Sheldon and Davy Van Auken about an older gay man who was devout, who had written to Lewis. Now, Lewis had destroyed the letter, as many of us do when we receive letters like Lewis does, like I do, who had shared with him that he was gay and he was a devout Christian. And so he wrote that this necessity could be turned to spiritual gain, that there were certain kinds of sympathy and understanding, a certain social role which mere men and women could not give. This is the man writing to Lewis as best Lewis could remember, that his necessity could be turned to spiritual gain, that there were certain kinds of sympathy and understanding, a certain social role which mere men and women could not give. Perhaps any gay person who humbly accepts his cross Perhaps any homosexual who humbly accepts his cross and puts himself under divine guidance, divine guidance will, however, be shown the way. In other words, there are gay people that he knew, homosexual people who he knew, who wrote to him, who said, as a matter of being devout, of being pious, maybe there's something unique about our own experience with this Maybe there's a place of humility to accept the thorn in the flesh, the cross that I bear, under divine guidance, that God's not surprised in God's sovereignty that you experience this. People often say to me, why did God give me these attractions if he doesn't want me to act on them? And I would say to them gently, I'm not sure that I agree that God gave you those attractions, but I don't think God's surprised in God's sovereignty that you experience those attractions. And then Lewis says in closing this part, I wish I could be more definite. All I've really said is that like other tribulations, it must be offered to God and God's guidance, his guidance, how to use it must be sought. And friends, that's to me the crux of ministry here. Can you walk with people in humility and help them have a posture of humility before God to recognize the tribulations and challenges that they face as something to be offered to God for his guidance and then to prayerfully join with them in seeking wisdom and discernment for that guidance. How do you use something and respond to something that might be a more enduring condition like same-sex sexuality. Now obviously a lot has changed socially since the 1940s when this exchange was going on. It's much more difficult today to find vocation. There are many, many more competing voices that would make vocation seem ludicrous, that would make costly obedience seem completely um, self-denigrating. And those voices are louder than ever before. All the more reason why you are needed in ministry today. I think the first question to ask when we turn to the question of vocation is first of all, do you want to? Do you want to minister to people navigating this terrain? And I really want you to answer that question in your hearts and your minds, not just knee jerk. I really want you to think about it and pray about it. Do I want to minister to people here? Sheldon Van Auken and Davy did want to, so they wrote to Lewis. They wanted to do it. In their natural spheres of influence, people came to them and said, what do you think about this? And they wanted to do right by them 
and right by Christ. And so they asked for help. But I think for many people in ministry, they actually don't want to minister to gay people. They would rather them not be in their youth group. They would rather them not come to their church. They'd rather them not be a part of their ministry. It makes ministry more complicated. It centers the ministry in cultural debates that layer into ministry and care for that person, that make it that much more difficult. It puts you in a spotlight. It gets you news coverage. There's a lot of reasons why people would say to me, honestly, if they pulled me aside, I'm not sure I do want those people here. Now, my view is this. I would love for each and every one of you to offer a resounding yes. I want to minister to people who are navigating sexual identity questions in their life. But I think the question has to be asked. There are too many people who've run into people in ministry where that answer was not a yes, where they didn't really want them there. And they may have said, I've got to want them there, but everything that they did suggested to that person that they didn't want them there. Now, I'm not saying put into the hands of the person what will count as a yes. You'll have people in your ministry say, if you really want to minister to me, you'll change your doctrinal positions about sexual morality. That's not what I'm talking about. Remember, Lewis laid the boundaries first. I lay the frame first. I agree with Lewis on what is morally permissible and what is morally impermissible. But it's upon laying the boundary that now you're free to minister. Do you want to? That's what I'm asking. Sheldon and Davy said, we want to. But I would tell you this, the most frequently asked question by gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people, people navigating this terrain is, do you want me here? And each and every one of us has to answer that question. Do I want them here? Lewis also says that devout Christians who were homosexual were fellow Christians. He didn't even question that. These two people who were homosexual, who came to Jean Davy, who came to Sheldon, were people of faith asking them what they thought about this. The pious, devout Christian who had written to Lewis was homosexual. Lewis took him to be a Christian, a fellow Christian. In other words, he's saying to that person, I have more in common with you by virtue of our shared faith then there are differences by virtue of our sexuality. Indeed, what we share is a longing for completion in the other. You experience it towards the same sex, I experience it towards the opposite sex, but all of those longings were meant to be instructive. The longing for completion is a longing for completion in Christ in eternity. Now there's different longings. I think one, the result of a fall, I think the other is intended from creation to characterize us. And there's complex issues that come in that for pastoral care. We can talk about that. Another suggestion as we think about vocation is do you live out vocation in your own life? In other words, ministering with people to help them find vocation is, the most, is most successful when you live an authentic life seeking meaning, purpose, and vocation in your life. And people gravitate to people who have a certain kind of integrity with that vocation. They get that you're not perfect, but that you're living a life of meaning and purpose, devout, following after God, 
and finding purpose in your life, that vocation's true for you. In other words, part of that vocation, I assume, means a kind of costly obedience to Christ. When we ask people, by virtue of our ministry, in line with the boundaries set and the word of God, to live out what must be costly obedience in their sexuality, do I live out that costly obedience in my own life? In other words, I can't just say to somebody, good luck with trying to live faithfully before God with your same-sex sexuality while I go home to my wife and children. In other words, do I live costly obedience in my life that would mirror in any way what's being asked of people living costly obedience in this area? That's a challenge for the church and for ministers in the years to come. And then I think the question of discipleship. Where I would put most of my focus with someone navigating these issues is helping them follow Christ, to disciple them in Christ's likeness. Too often we equate discipling people with having them become straight. Notice that Lewis didn't go there. He didn't say, help them become heterosexual and then help them find vocation. He said, help them find vocation. Help them grow in Christ's likeness and meaning and purpose and let's see what happens with their same-sex attractions. I don't know. I've known people for whom that has, there's been a dramatic change in that part of their life, but I know many more people for whom that's not taken place. And they have found meaning and purpose and vocation in light of enduring same-sex sexuality. And I know many people who would wanna share that with you. They would want to connect with you and say, here are some ideas for ministering to me and the people like me. Do you know them? Would you connect with them? Those relationships have shaped how I minister to people and they could shape how you minister to people as well. In all of this, let me just, um, with just a word of prayer for us, um, these are challenging topics, challenging for the culture today. Let's pray together. Father, I just thank you for every person here and for their heart's desire to be in ministry. I thank you for the gifts and talents that you've given them, the calling you've placed on their life. I have no doubt that everybody here wants to minister faithfully in following your lead. Give us wisdom and discernment as we engage around this topic and the actual people who represent this topic in our lives. Would you help us to know our audience is you ultimately, but to know who we're ministering to. Give us wisdom and discernment to minister well to them, to find vocation, meaning, purpose. We ask this in the name of Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.